Sasha Thompson is a respected and certified DEI coach. For the next 30 minutes, we'll get an exclusive look at some of her conversations with others in the field. Welcome to DEI After Five. Hello, everyone, and welcome to DEI After Five. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a while because anyone that's in the diversity and inclusion space knows that we cross paths with people, we hear names and, you know, just like, okay, let's get to know each other a little bit better um, because so many of us are doing similar things. And so my next guest is one of those people that her name has come up several times and, hey, you need to meet this person. This person says that you need to meet. And so we've chatted a few times and you know follow each other on social media and so i'm really looking forward to this conversation and so today my guest is aparna ray welcome hi sasha thanks for having me thank you for being here so the first question that i want to ask um is how did you get into this work oh my gosh how indeed so i feel like you know I was doing DEI work before it was sexy, before it was popular. My background's in education. And in 2017, I decided I wanted to get a graduate education in decolonizing pedagogy specifically. And that's what brought me out to the West Coast. I've been living and working in Chicago. And that's what I wanted to study. I was really interested in sort of the racialized dynamics in our school system. Um, which as an immigrant, I didn't know about, you know, so when I went into teaching, I'd only been living in the U.S. for a few years, and I didn't know the long sort of racialized history and the racial formation of the United States, and so that's what I was curious about, and I got really lucky. I ended up going to the University of British Columbia. That is a university that has kind of a, a long legacy of, you know, studying and teaching um, kind of in a, a way that is a lot more culturally competent. And I got to learn a lot from Native uh, faculty members while I was at UBC. And so um, DEI just has always been a part of how I work. And, you know, I, I mean, I also have a lot of the identities that lend themselves um, to this work. I'm a woman of color in America, um, but, you know, I'm from India. I've lived and grown up in five or six different countries. And yeah, so that, that point of view and sort of looking out for people with lots of different identities just been in my DNA and then, you know, combined with like research skills and um, adult learning skills is made for uh, a good mix. You know, you, it's interesting because both of us kind of started in the education space yeah. around this. Um, but I want you to talk about the decolonization piece of it, because I think that that's a term Gosh. that folks are starting to hear a little bit more of. It's triggering for some people. Um, because it really asked to unlearn a lot of how we have been um, raised, how we've been taught to think about certain things. And so can you talk about a little bit about that and what that looks like in this work? Oh my gosh, I think it's so hard. Um, and I you know, also happen to be wearing this t-shirt today. Um, so I should be able to answer this question. Yeah, like decolonizing. You know, I think that when you, 
when when you think of the word decolonizing, I think for a lot of white folks in particular, and I will say like white folks in America in particular, they have distanced themselves in such a huge way from their history, right? Like they mm. have forgotten, or maybe they never knew in the first place that the British actually came and colonized these lands, right? Like they did that. And um, why Americans like struggle to wrap their head around that is is kind of beyond me because I'm, you know, decidedly not American. Um, but coming from India, you know, our our colonizers are very much in our lives. Like their their legacy and their impact is felt today. And you know, as somebody who's from India, I mean, the two things they left us with was English and and railways. Um, right. So we have that. I've always been a native English speaker, even if it's not my mother tongue. Um, and we have trains, you know, but the legacy of uh, colonialism in India runs so deep. Right. There is a preference for light skin. So the colorism piece, which yeah. um, I think white folks don't know about is huge. It's it's also true in the, in the black community because all of Africa was colonized by European nations, right? And it was split up so they could colonize different portions of it. Um, yeah, I mean, there's 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 almost this thing, and and if you will, right? Like, I want to bring up something that's like just happened in our popular culture, which is mm -hmm. this Netflix show. I'm sure you've seen it, Love Is Blind, right? Um, and there's just been this controversy and i think so many people are like i had no idea with these two characters deep beat and shake right where they're like we've never dated an indian person right because the internalized depression is so deep and that is a facet of of colonization so when i think about decolonizing our work i mean what a, a level of like deep nuanced understanding we have to have about race which is a social construct that's not even real, racism, which of, of course affects us, internalized depression, ethnicity, and within that, like the nature of diasporic communities. And so what is the Indian American experience of people whose you know ancestors came a hundred years ago when India and Canada were part of the British Empire, right? And they they came they came to Canada and a lot of them, you know, sort of came down to the US and the nature of the same South Asian Indian communities um, after the passage of the 1965 Naturalization Act, um, thanks to Black leaders, where that group, that diasporic community is, is wealthier, right? Like, Sasha, they're the people that you went to work with at Amazon. Um, their parents came into high-paying jobs, right? And all of the ways in which they have mimicked white culture to be successful, Right needs to be needs to be understood so that as we as we create strategies for equity and inclusion, we have to hold the fullness of our experience in a country that is so enormously complex. You have struck a nerve <laughs> because I think it's it's so much to unpack. Right, it is so much to unpack, and I was having a conversation with um, Tara Robertson Robinson um, yeah. earlier this week and she asked a question she said something she's trying to unpack is how does white supremacy show up in a room when there was no one white in the room mm. <laughs> right and i've been noodling on that for a while 
because yeah. it's exactly what you talked about, right? It's so ingrained in how we are um, raised and what we're taught to see as good versus evil or what is success look like. Um, you know, right now there's so much going on that we really have to kind of step back, you know, TV shows, things that are happening on the Hill um, yeah. that we have to say, okay, how much of this have we really internalized as right versus um, what is actually right or what is actually more natural for me because of who I am and my ancestry, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, and so as you're doing diversity and inclusion work, one of the things that I know I run into quite often is how do you approach this work without coddling sensitivities? Yeah. Pushing people to out of their comfort zone a little bit and make progress, right? Because the coddling of sensitivities piece has become so critical that I think a lot of what we're seeing in this space has been a whitewashing of DEI. And so when I think about that and the whole lens of decolonization, um, those are totally opposite. Mm. Yeah, these are, I mean, this is, this is really hard, right? Because coddling of white sensitivity has been legislated in yeah. the United States. And to me, it's wild. But then, you know, as I've gotten older and sort of grown in my own professional journey, what I noticed is that coddling of sensitivities is built in its part and parcel of every culture where there is a dominant group that wants to be coddled. And they use that coddling it to keep their power, right? Mm -hmm. um, what I've realized over time is that, and, you know, hopefully I don't get into trouble for saying this, when people say to me, oh, I just don't know, like, I don't know better. Can you show me, right? I really see that as white manipulation because like you, yes, you know, like, you know, the consequences of not speaking up, you know, the consequences of not showing up, like, you know, the consequences of not participating in creating the future of work. You actually know all of the consequences and you continue to place the burden of proof onto women of color, onto communities of color, onto people that are immigrants. In all of my time of doing this work, I've never, I've never had a leader say to me, oh, I'm curious about what is the ROI of having my all white leadership team. Not at once, right? Not at one time. Yep. But we know the impact. I mean, I think for women of color, for us in particular, because we have grown up to be hyper vigilant human beings, like we're always watching our backs, right? Like you can't even walk into a Nordstrom and like pick out a foundation without somebody tracking you through the store. So like the impact of the lack of diversity is so deeply felt. We can see it. We are watching it happen in real time with what's happening in the Supreme Court, which I don't know about you, Sasha, but like my, I'm not even a black woman and I can feel this like 
like anger kind of like rise up through me, listening to this incredibly qualified black woman get pummeled verbally. And I feel for her. And at the same time, I'm like, wow, this is so familiar. Like I've just kind of watched it happen. And, and the reason that we're getting to watch it happen is white coddling. It's like, calling the needs of our oppressors. And so my workaround to all of that is I basically say to people, like, I'm not the person to sit with you with your feelings and your emotions. I want to use a data-informed approach for you to make decisions about people ops and DEI in your organization. And I bypass the, the coddling, the people-pleasing, the, you know, white fragility, all of those terms. I just just bypass all of those. I'm like, look, let's just ask people in your organization how they are being impacted. And now we're gonna have kind of an objective data set to work with and let's use that to make decisions. Yeah, I think, you know, what's interesting, um, there's so much shock and awe, I think that's happening. And it's started with the murder of George Floyd. Um, because people have been allowed to ignore these things for so long. Um, but now that it's kind of front and center stage, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is how he was treated or she was treated. And I'm like, this happens every single day in your organization. Yeah. You have chosen to not to watch or seen it and chosen not to do anything. And, you know, I've been saying to people that if someone comes up to you after the fact to say, oh, I'm so sorry that that's happened to you. That's a waste of breath. Mm-hmm. Like you might as well not say anything at all, at least to me, because I'm like, you should have said something in the moment because then I would have known you were truly an ally because you're willing mm-hmm. to put yourself in that uncomfortable situation. Right. And so what I'm noticing right now or what I'm starting to do right now is call people out on it. Like this is the stuff that's happening. Guess what? This is what's happening and watch the thread of comments yeah, because you're going to notice like, yes, this has happened to me. Yes, this has happened to me. And there's the shock and awe of like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that this is still happening. Open your eyes. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And so these are the things that I think organizations need. And, you know, you talk about data and absolutely. But this is data. Right. This is absolutely data. So if you aren't doing exit surveys or if you are listening to folks and saying, okay, that's a one-off. How many one-offs do you have? Because if you have 25 one-offs in a one-month period, guess what? Now you have a trend. And if they're the same demographic, there's a problem. And so what are you doing as an organization to fix that? That leak is not something that is that individual person's problem. That's your culture. And so I'm starting to have more of those types of conversations where it's, how do we fix this culture? Because it's toxic. You may not be able to um, see the toxicity or it may be fine for you. I think um, I was talking to one guest, Janet Stovall, and she said, you know, people use the fish out of water analogy a lot. But if you are a freshwater fish being put in salt water, you're not going to be able to breathe. So not water is not the same. The culture is not the same for everyone, where everyone will thrive. And so I think those are the things that we need to continue to bring up and highlight 
for these organizations because we got to get past some of these check boxes that they're, you know, oh, yep, we've done that. We've had a workshop. Like part of me is like, I'm starting to stop do I, yeah. Oh, I don't, don't do no more, no more workshops. Yeah. It's like, I don't do one-off workshops anyway, mm-hmm. but I'm really getting to a point where I'm like, okay, yeah, no, I'm not going to be your checkbox. And there are organizations out there that have found that that without changing culture, it's just, you know, a good way to bring in some money for their organization. No, mm-hmm. no, because you're causing more damage than good. So let's do a little bit of a pivot and talk about, so as you are doing this work, um, what are some of the aha moments that some of the leaders you've worked with have had? Oh, aha moments for leaders. I, I will say I feel really lucky because of the lane that we're in. We we end up working with people that are sort of naturally farther along. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of times we'll, we'll go into an organization that's already been doing work in advancing gender equity, and now they want to intentionally advance race equity, right? Um because of our engagement approach also, right? I'm not walking into organizations and training people or, um, you know, doing workshops or coaching people. I'm coming in and typically starting with an assessment and using that data to drive decisions. So I feel like my window into leader behavior is uh, I think a little bit better than the average, you know, practitioner's experience, but some of the things that, you know, that I'm noticing is um, we don't need to coddle leaders. Like they are grown up people and they can actually handle like real talk and they can actually handle like diving into their company's data. And so a lot of times what happens and I don't know, Sasha, I'm like sure you've had this experience a gazillion times, right? Where as an external consultant, you're walking into an organization And one of the gatekeeping behaviors is so-and-so doesn't have time, right? Or so-and-so doesn't need 10 slides. Can you put everything in two slides, right? And Mm -hmm. that is is gatekeeping, coddling behavior. Um, But leaders, like, if you're going to make decisions about running a billion-dollar company, like, you can look at 10 slides, right? You can spend an hour really thinking about what is happening inside your organization and draw the through line to the business impact you can do that so that's one aha um you know the second is um and maybe slightly controversial is like companies the way in which they set up their ergs is so exploitative the work yes the work lies like who created racism like not me um you know so the work lies with senior leaders the work lies with people managers the work lies with um white identifying white adjacent folks including right south asians like we we occupy a lot of these white adjacent spaces we behave a lot like white people when it serves us um and that's where the work lies and so asking you know moms in your company or black people in your company or like just pick the most marginalized identity and like you're like hey can you please teach us for free 
Right. Can you please fix this for free? Oh, and also, by the way, we have this diversity hiring goal. And like you are the source of 100% of the referrals. That is insane. You know, so the other aha I've had is in healthy organizations, they're not looking at their ERGs to learn. They're looking at their ERGs um, to build a better, stronger culture for people, right? Like we are looking at those ERGs as spaces that are empowering for those groups. They're not fishbowl environments, right? In healthy organizations, Mm -hmm. ERG work is not a fishbowl. ERGs are like where I get my strength, where I get my community, because there's an understanding that my experience is different than the majority experience. And I need that time and space with my my peers. Um, Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I'm noticing about the healthiest organizations and like the aha moment with leaders is that the leaders that most care about it are the least in front talking about it, right? They're not. They're not. And that's kind of what I think overall, even with, you know, just great leaders in general. Like I remember this moment, maybe 15 years ago when I discovered Indra Nui and I was like, there's an Indian woman who's the head. She's the CEO of Pepsi. Yeah. How have I not known about her? Right. Um, in my early twenties, I didn't know about her because she wasn't like some like big influencer. She wasn't in my newsfeed. And that's what I think about, like, the leaders that are leading on DEI inside of their organizations, most of them are doing the work, they're getting their data, and they're not out talking about it until they have something to show for it. So, um, yes, right? Yes. You said that and two people immediately came to mind. And I'm not going to name names or companies, but those that know, know. One organization I worked with, the CTO was actually, he started DEI work within the organization before the organization did. Like mm. doing things with his engineering team around diversity and inclusion, looking at the data. I discovered that and I'm like, how can I partner with you? Because yeah. this is something that I've never seen before, right? It didn't come out of HR. It didn't come out of any of those other teams. It was out of engineering where yeah. their diversity efforts started. Another organization, exactly to your point, a VP who loved being on stage talking about diversity and inclusion, um, but this particular VP, diversity equaled white women. So anything yes. beyond white women, she, mm. she didn't care about, right? And... Um, my interactions with that person, with her, showed me, okay, that's exa- that's the only demographic you care about. Because as a woman, even though you're talking about women, I got treated like crap. Yeah. Because I was a black woman. Right? So it's like that intersection. But mm-hmm. yet this person is known and has gone out and spoken and been quoted in all kinds of media about her love and support of diversity and inclusion. Yet, ask anyone that's worked under her, and they'll say, "Yeah, no, not so much." So can so. I can I say a controversial thing? Go and for it's, it. It's not. I I don't even think it's controversial for women of color, but I think for like any of your white identifying white women listeners in particular, right? 
we live we live in a country specifically where up until 30 40 years ago women of color were the help um mm -hmm. and it, it didn't matter what race or ethnicity you had as a woman of color you were the house help you were the nanny you were right like mm -hmm. and i think in the psyche of white folks but in particular white women coming from like plantation days down um they have been leaning down hard into women of color and it shows up in the corporate world because when when a lot of times white leaders who are leaders in DEI, which Sasha, like, how crazy is it that even though um, you know companies have been hiring a lot of people of color into DEI roles, still more than fifty percent of them are held by white women, yep. um, right? And we know that HR um, is predominantly white women, yep. and they're of a, they're of an age where they grew up with people that look look like you and I. We were the help. And it's just so deeply embedded and it shows up in the policies and processes that are designed um, and how anytime you say, hey, but that's not my experience as a woman of color or that's not my experience as a black woman, they're going to come back and say, well, I pulled myself up by the bootstraps. Like I was I was raised in a time where I couldn't have a credit card. And you're like, OK, but now we're in a time where we can all have credit cards. Um, and here are things that are not working for my demographic inside of this company. And they're in like disbelief. They're in like absolute disbelief. Yeah. Oh, there's so much to unpack with that. Lord have mercy. Yes. I mean, it. it's dumbfounding to some extent. But again, I think we're in this space in this age where it's now super visible. Right. Yeah. And people are calling it out. And it's a time of reflection. It's a time of before saying, oh, nope, not everyone. Think about it. Like, don't even say it. Think about and reflect on the times that you've done it and not even realize that you've done it. And I think those are the moments that are happening right now um, because it's it's tough. It's a tough pill to swallow that you have benefited from this unjust, unfair, unequitable system for so long um, that was not necessarily based on your merit, but your proximity to power. Yeah. Yeah. I can name a few folks that have gotten jobs that had zero, zero experience in that space, but it was their proximity to power, yet you feel that it was merit. Mm, yeah, no, not so much. Don't you have this moment? I feel like I have this moment every single day where I'm like, how did you get that job? Like literally, if I had a t-shirt that could just say, how did you get that job? I would wear it every single day because I run across somebody every single day where they say or do something or I ask them a question and they just show me that they definitely <laughs> got their job through connections, proximity to yep. power, nepotism, yep. faking it, you know, all of the things. And it, it kind of makes me feel so sad because there's so many smart people in my life who I see struggling to advance in their career because they are like the wrong skin color. You yep. know, they have the wrong accent. They didn't go to some she-she fancy university. They went to a state school. Um, yeah. And they're not, they're not in, 
they don't have a seat at the table where their experience and their both formal education and informal education could really be impactful for their employer. Yeah. I want to do a little bit of a pivot. So when we've talked about this um, before, but this work, you know, you're always learning, you're always growing. It takes a lot out of you and you're feeding and putting into other people. And so what is it that you do to fill your cup, to, to take care of yourself as mm. you're feeding other folks? Mm. Yeah, great question. Well, you know, I think if you'd asked me this question maybe three years ago, I would have said I do nothing and I'm always exhausted um, where I've evolved. Um, one thing, and I, I'm going to like offer this to any DI practitioner is like, just don't freaking take it personally. Right. Like mm. if you're working with somebody, you're working with a client, they're not advancing, they're not growing, they're kind of being petty and mean, don't take it personally. And it's a hard, it's a hard thing to learn to do, but like you gotta put on your rain jacket, you know, because the rain is not gonna stop, but it's important that you stay dry so that you don't get sick. Mm. Um, so I really found my rain jacket and I just don't, I don't take a lot of it personally. Um um, but really, I mean, what fills my cup is I've become like a true Pacific Northwest girl. <laughs> I love me a hike. Um, I've got all the gear. I've got my 30 jackets for like the 30 different variations of weather. And um, I love, I truly love being outdoors. I love my kale salads. Um, but I think more than anything else, like I just love like a good snuggle and like staying on the couch with my partner that really does more than anything else fill me up. Love it. Love it. Love it. And so if people wanted to get in contact with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Yeah. Um, connect with me on LinkedIn um, or shoot me an email. That's my email address at partner at moving beyond.co. Um, yeah. I mean, enter my DMS, I guess, like um, slide in slide 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 into them yeah that's right um yeah i mean email email or linkedin i want to say that i am very responsive on any other platform but that just simply is not true all right thank you so much aparna this has been a fabulous conversation um there, oh my gosh there's just so many little nuggets out of this that I'm like, yeah, yeah, and another thing. So thank you so much for that. And thank you to everyone for watching us today. I hope that you were able to gather some things or there were some comments that were made that will cause you to pause and question um, because that's what this work is about. It's, it's about being reflective and doing some of that internal work as well too. So be sure to watch the next episode of DEI After Five on Tuesdays at 5.15 p.m. Eastern. You can catch us on YouTube or follow us on your favorite podcast station. We'll see you the next time. Have a good one.